uh, this morning. So if you would uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, uh, we'll begin in verse 14 and read down through uh, verse 10 of chapter 5. Um, I know that's borderline. If you're able, would you please stand uh, as we read God's word together? Uh, let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Uh, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We just sang that. That we may uh, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are our priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest. After the order of Melchizedek, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord does indeed stand forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in this, your word. Use it to uh, draw us to comfort and confidence in Christ as our priest, as our great high priest interceding for us. Even now, Uh, we ask all of this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I hate reusing introductions, but I'm now standing here getting ready to start talking, realizing I think I've used this before, but alas, um, maybe you've forgotten just as I had. How about that? Uh, you know, there are, uh, there are certain words that you're not allowed to use in our world today. There, there, are, there are phrases, there are things that you are not allowed to say to people um, in sort of normal everyday life. And, and you, certainly, you certainly better not be doing it on social media or you will, you will face all kinds of wrath for that. It's words like, no, you can't. It's words like, you're not allowed to do that, or you're not allowed to be that, or words like, you're wrong. The world we live in says, you get to do what you do. You get to be you, and no one has the right to tell you otherwise. 
You get to determine your truth. You get to determine um, uh, who you are and what you are. And no one else can come along and, and challenge that in any way. Uh, you get to decide uh, who you are and who you're going to be. And no one's allowed to say that you're wrong. No one's allowed to say you have to do something different. The Bible, of course, tells us a different story. The Bible tells us that we all have a problem. That even the people saying you're wrong are also in the same sort of condition. That we all have a problem. That we're all born with a, a relationship conflict with God. That we're not... Um, that, that God is, that God exists, that He establishes His truth and therefore truth uh, in the world um, and he is our creator, our maker, our sustainer, and we are born at odds with him. We are born shaking our fist at him. We're born hating him. And for that matter, we violate God's revealed will daily in thought, word, and deed, as we even just confessed a few minutes ago. We're born selfish. We're born self-serving. Uh, you never have to teach a kid the word mine. You never have to teach a child to say no to their parents. We never have to teach them what a lie is or how to lie. We just have to call attention to the fact that they have. We're born at enmity with God. Of course, the, the fancy church word for that is sin, right? We're all born violating God's revealed will. We're all born guilty of cosmic treason. And our first parents left to the freedom of their own will sinned against God. Hey, that sounds like a catechism answer. By eating the forbidden fruit. And we have inherited that sinful nature. The reality is we sin because we're sinners, we're not sinners because we sin. And what that means is that we can't earn God's favor. We can't be good enough. We can't try harder. We can't grab our bootstraps and pull extra hard, extra firm, extra quick and be right back where we belong. We have a sin condition. We're born with this sin condition and that has to be dealt with. And so what, what this passage tells us in part is we need a priest. We need someone to stand between us and God. You know, it's interesting. Um, and again, I, I call attention to this all the time because I know this is... Okay, not in this room, right? We have to give that caveat. I'm not accusing any of you. Um, but the world we live in the context in which Grace Covenant finds itself sort of has this, this view of the God of the Old Testament that is, that is just demanding and, and difficult and, and constantly scowling at His people and that the people of the Old Testament were saved by doing good works. They were saved by their, by their merit, by doing everything right, by obeying God's law. And in the Old Testament, the, 
the reality of salvation by grace alone is, is everywhere. Including in the existence of such an office as a priest. We just finished Exodus. We just watched this unfold before our eyes. But the tabernacle exists because God gave it to Moses. The office of priest exists because God created it and commanded of Moses, give it to Aaron and his descendants after him. In other words, God comes to Moses, God comes to the people of Israel and says, look, you have a sin problem that has to be dealt with. And so here's how I am going to deal with it for you. We'll establish this office of priest. We'll establish a sacrificial system. We'll establish a tabernacle. We'll establish a place for the sacrifice to be made and the blood to be sprinkled. Just look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Down in verse 4, no one takes this honor for himself only when called by God, just as Aaron was. The tabernacle is given. The priesthood is given because we have a sin problem and God initiates the solution. Now, it's a temporary solution. It's a, a picture of a solution. It's a, it's, it's a foreshadowing of the great, the true solution. But even that is initiated by God. God salvation is by grace alone from Genesis 1, well, Genesis 3 to the end of Revelation. God selected Aaron. God selected his descendants and assigned them the office, the position of high priest. And so the reality is, the God of the Old Testament isn't a cosmic killjoy. The God of the Old Testament isn't a, a difficult, oppressive ogre just waiting for his people to mess up. No, instead, he's saying, you, you are messed up, and you have messed up, and you will mess up, and here's how we're going to solve this. Here's how we're going to deal with the reality of Sin in the world, in your life. So the very existence of a priesthood is evidence of God's long-suffering and mercy. The priest's job, of course, is to act, verse 1, on behalf of men in relation to God. You're reading through the Old Testament and you realize, oh wait, the prophet, that's a picture of Jesus. The priest, that's a picture of Jesus. The king, also a picture of Jesus. Again, there are catechism questions for that. And the prophet's job is to take God's word to the people. The priest's job is to intercede for the people to God. To, to allay God's wrath for Sin, at least for a time. And so he offers sacrifices for the people because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You and I need a priest. But we don't get to just go out and pick any old person. And, and you may even notice that, that in the Presbyterian church, we don't have someone we call a priest. And the reason for that, in part, is because there are 
particular expectations, particular requirements for who might fit as the priest. And, and one of those requirements is we need a priest. We need a priest like us. Did you notice verse 1? Every high priest is chosen from among men. Throughout the Old Testament, the, the priest was an Israelite, was one of God's people. He was a, a man just like everyone else that he represented. He was of the same likeness, same kind as the Israelites. And that, of course, makes perfect sense. But did you notice how Jesus is described in verse 15 of chapter 4? As like us, right? First, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. That double negative. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize. Then you have to untangle the knots and you have to rewrite the sentence in your head. The point is... He knows your condition. We have a high priest. It's pointing to Jesus who who knows what it's like to walk this earth as a man. To walk this earth in the flesh. To be, even if only for a time, limited to a place the way you and I are. He absolutely can sympathize with our weakness because he himself bears the flesh of mankind. And you can you can walk through the New Testament. You can walk through the the story of Christ, his his incarnation. He took on flesh and the limitations of of life in a physical body, something that that was new to him at the incarnation he knows the pain and suffering and, and temptation of humanity. He understands the, the troubles and the conflicts and the issues that we face. He was tempted in every way like you and I. You only need to go to the bookends. I mean, never mind the assumptions we can make. Now, they would be just merely assumptions, right? We don't know that much about his childhood, But just for a moment, you're one of his younger siblings, one of his younger brothers, younger sisters. He had more than one of each. Growing up with an older brother, the oldest child in the family, who actually is perfect. Who never didn't make his bed. Who never didn't do his homework. Who never didn't obey his parents. Who never looked them in the eye and said, no, I'm not going to go do that. Who never once told a lie. It's bad enough for us as fellow sinners. He knows the difficulties, the conflicts of life. In the flesh, but but you can go look. I mean, that, and that's just assumptions about his growing up years. We have we have very clearly laid out for us the very bookends of his ministry. You go to the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, and where does he start? He starts forty days of fasting in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, 
And what are the things that Satan offers? Food? Power? Authority? I would give like that. Right? Those are all things we want. They're, they're all things that, that you and I would love to have fame and food and power and rule and governance and all of these sorts of things. Those are the very things that Satan comes to. Now look, the, the conversation about whether or not he actually could offer those, that's another sermon for another day. We preached through Luke nine years ago. Dig it up on the website. Just keep hitting pages until you get back there. And then you go to the end of his ministry. And where do you find him? The night before, I mean the very night before going to the cross. He's in the garden. Father, if there's another cup I could drink. If there's another way. Blood seeping from his body. Left alone, his disciples falling asleep. I'd run. I'd find the other way. I, nobody's watching me. The disciples are asleep. They have no idea I could disappear. I could be gone. And never did he yield to those temptations. Never did he sin as you and I did. But the picture here is that he has endured it. You know, you think about the things that you say to yourself... I've got it worse than anyone else I know. My struggle, my conflict, my temptation, my weakness, my, my sins, my issues, whatever they are. The times we say, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows what I've been through. Nobody has it as bad as I do. Jesus says, as the second person of the Trinity in the flesh on the night before He went to the cross to bear your sins. I know the temptation. I've been there. Jesus understands your struggles because He has taken on flesh. He's walked this earth. He's lived the life in the flesh and been Tempted in every way as you and I have. He was, he's a man, but not merely a man. Gregory of Nazianzus, St. Gregory of the, the fourth century church father, wrote, That which he has not assumed, he has not healed. In other words, if Jesus isn't like you in every respect, something about you remains unsaved unhealed, unrestored. And just like the priests of the Old Testament, this was, this was Jesus' assigned job. Did you notice in verse 5? Just like the Old Testament priests, so also Christ didn't exalt Himself to be made a high priest. Jesus didn't seek that. He was appointed that position by the Father. And now you get to go into eternity past and, and the covenant made within the, the Godhead. The, the commitment made between them that the Father would ordain salvation, the Son would accomplish, the Spirit would apply. 
The Son was appointed to take on flesh, to redeem God's people, and so He became like us. But there's a problem, though, if we have a priest who is only like us, right? Or, or merely like us. If we have a, a high priest who is, is only like us, then some of the problem still exists. We find that in verse 3 of chapter 5, because the reality is the priest of the Old Testament had to first offer sacrifices for his sin before he could offer the sacrifices of the sins of the people. It's a picture of Leviticus 16 and and the day of atonement and the high priest would go into the most holy place we just went through this right would go into the most holy place with blood and sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the mercy seat the the lid of the box that is the ark of the covenant the throne where god dwells He would sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat first for himself because he's just as guilty as everyone else around him. And then blood for the people. If if that's our only hope, if, if our high priest, if Jesus as our high priest is like us, but he's only like us, we need to go find a lamb and quick. We're still in our sin. If he's just another human, just another person, then, then he suffered and bled and died for his own sins, not for ours. Our problem still exists. We need a priest. We need a priest who is like us. But the reality is we also need a priest who is unlike us. And that's the picture of Jesus in this passage. Back in verse 15 of chapter 4. Yes, he can sympathize with us. Yes, he knows our weakness. Yes, he knows what that's like. Except for those last three words of verse 15. Yet without sin. We know it was Jesus' food to do the will of the Father. We know that that. He doesn't need a sacrifice for his own cosmic treason. He doesn't need a sacrifice to atone for his own disobedience. He never disobeyed. So we have this picture then of Jesus, not just as the priest offering the sacrifice, but as the lamb being the sacrifice. Did you notice that in our affirmation of faith a few minutes ago? How how does Christ execute the office of a priest? Once offering up of himself, he's the priest and he's the lamb. He's the sacrificer and the sacrificee. Are those words? They should be words. And the reality is, if that offering, if that sacrifice is blemished, then it's unacceptable. So too would have been Jesus had he been marked with sin of his own. Because we know that the wages of sin is death, right? You, you get your W-2 and, it, and then you have to transfer the number to line one on your 1040, right? And, it, and it's got this term, wages. How much did you get paid? How much did you make? How much did you earn last year? And, and that's, of course, a, a money number. 
That's the same sort of concept here. What do we earn by our disobedience? What do we earn by our sin? What do we deserve? What can we write down on line one on our 1040? Death. My sin earns me death. If Jesus had disobeyed, it would have been true of him as well. Jesus tried to offer himself as a sacrifice, but he too was marred with sin. If he wasn't spotless, if he wasn't unblemished, he would not have been an acceptable sacrifice. In fact, did you notice how our passage ends? There are a couple of words, a couple of phrases there that probably made you kind of cock your head to the side. Like, what in the world does this mean? Because it says that he learned obedience, verse 8, and was made perfect Verse 9, first of all, perfect there isn't moral perfection. He's always been morally perfect. It's complete. It's, it has more to do with adequate for the role. <coughs> made, made complete <coughs> for this, this office, office of priesthood. And of course... <coughs> As the Holy Son of the Father, Jesus has always been morally right, morally perfect. But it's His obedience in the flesh, on the earth, that makes Him perfect for, complete for the role. Jesus is faithfully fulfilling the demands of the law of God. And that made Him an acceptable sacrifice. But where is Jesus now? Where is he? Well, the, our passage tells us. In fact, it tells us at the, begin, the very beginning, he's passed through the heavens. Where did the priest do his work in the Old Testament? In the Holy of Holies, that inner room of the tabernacle. Which really was sort of a picture of the garden and, and a picture of heaven. Which is where Jesus is now. He's in the true most holy place. He's in the true uh, holy of holies. He's passed through the heavens and now sits at the right hand of the Father because His work as our priest is complete. He's, He's in the very place that the holy of holies was supposed to point to. He's in the true most holy place, the heavenly throne room. Think about it. Adam's sin got him kicked out of the garden. The the dwelling place of God with man. Jesus' obedience means that he's now accepted in the true tabernacle. The heavenly sanctuary. We inherit Adam's sin by virtue of our birth. We receive Christ's righteousness by faith. Jesus is the priest that we need who is like us, but he is also unlike us. What does this mean for us? Well, the writer tells us. The writer tells us that if you aren't looking to Christ as your priest, you're still in your sin. You have no hope of eternity. You have no hope Uh, In this life or the one to come in which your sin uh, can and will be dealt with. Our need for a high priest 
uh, is for everyone. Uh, all mankind needs the priest who can deal with that sin issue and solve our relationship with God. But it also means, verse 14, that we as believers can hold fast to our confession. We can draw with confidence, verse 16, to the very throne of grace. Why? Because the work of the priest has been completed. The work of the priest has been finished, accomplished, and all that has, has to be done, dealt with your sin, has been dealt with. And he's been accepted. And because Christ, as our priest, is like us, and yet unlike us, he, his work, and therefore he, has been accepted in our place. We can have confidence in our salvation, not because of our confidence in our faith, We have confidence in our salvation, not because we're confident of our strong faith, but because our faith is is confident in a strong Savior. You have confidence in your salvation because Christ has been accepted by the Father as our substitute in death. You can have confidence in your salvation because Jesus was received as the spotless lamb sacrificed for his people. You can have confidence in your salvation because Jesus was counted worthy by the Father, which means your sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for by Christ, your high priest. May we go with that hope, with that confidence. Would you pray with me? We thank you, Father, that you have, even from before the foundation of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit entered into this this covenant agreement, this covenant arrangement that would accomplish our salvation, our deliverance from sin. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness, even in the flesh, even in the face of weakness and temptation and 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 life on this earth, that you would withstand the (coughs) onslaught of Satan himself. That you would withstand the temptation to flee from the cross, to seek another way. That you and your faithfulness would suffer and bleed and die for sins that we have committed and yet be raised again and pass through the heavens into the most holy place where the blood of the Lamb sits permanently for our forgiveness. Would you, O Holy Spirit, be at work with that truth in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives that we might draw with confidence to the very throne room of grace, that we might hold fast, that we might Hold on tightly and firmly to that which we believe because Christ has been accepted by the Father in our place. Use that in our daily lives. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.